Let me introduce myself. I'm Esther Greenwood, all-American girl wonder scholarship student. I think I made her up inside my head. Me, a poet? Are you kidding? Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'll be discussing The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath. This novel is the story of Esther Greenwood, a young aspiring poet in the 1950s who spends a summer as an intern in a woman's magazine in New York. There she has formative and frequently disillusioning social experiences whilst reflecting on her relationship with an invalid boyfriend, Buddy. Increasingly isolated and depressed, Esther returns to her mother's home where she attempts to kill herself by overdosing on pills. Awaking in a mental institute, she prepares to re-enter the world whilst being treated with electrical shock therapy. The Bell Jar is Platt's only published novel and is often described as an autobiographical roman à clay due to its strong resemblance to Platt's own 20th year. However, as Linda Wagner-Martin has written, to read works like The Bell Jar autobiographically is in many cases to miss the artistry Plath demands of her writing. And it's in that spirit that we'll be talking about the novel today, not only comparing the life to the work, but appreciating elements of Plath's artistry, her grotesque gallows humour, her interest in doubles and invented identities, and the way in which the novel digests the landscape and clutter of the 1950s. I'm delighted to say that joining me to discuss The Bell Jar is Dr Gail Crowther, an expert in the field of Plath studies. Gail is the author of several books on Plath, including Sylvia Plath in Devon, A Year's Turning, which concentrates on 15 months of the writer's life between 1961 and 62. Co-authored by Plath's friend Elizabeth Sigmund, the book is a window into a very productive period for Plath, during which she was correcting proofs for the bell jar. On tomorrow's episode, I'll be talking more to Gail about her own work, in particular her most recent book, Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz, a study of Plath and her fellow poet, Anne Sexton. But keeping with the bell jar for the moment, I began by asking Gail about the novel's unconventional publication history. Yeah, I mean, I think the history behind the bell jar is really interesting because... It was first published in uh, January 1963, mm. when Plath was still alive, and obviously it was published under a different name, Victoria Lucas. And this seemed to be for a number of reasons, really. First of all, I think Plath regarded the novel as a bit of a pot boiler, as she called it, which I think was perhaps, <clears throat> you know, a little bit modest of her. But also, I mean, there's speculation that perhaps she was trying to hide her, her identity because of the depiction of some of the characters mm. in the novel, which perhaps um, people might have recognised themselves in it. So initially it came out in 63 under Victoria Lucas, um, and then it didn't come out under Plath's own name until uh, 1967 in the UK. And then it was published in America in 1971. So, you know, it's it's got quite a, a, an interesting history behind it. Do we know how she hit upon Victoria Lucas? 
no, not really. It kind of seems to be, you know, certain family members had the name Victoria, so perhaps it, it was based on that. But no, I, I, there doesn't really seem to be a satisfactory explanation about where that name came from. Plath was initially writing the bell jar under a sponsorship from the Eugene F. Saxton Memorial Trust, set up by the publisher Harper and Rowe. However, in 1962, after Plath sent the Trust a manuscript to review, they rejected it, calling the book disappointing, juvenile and overwrought. Instead, the novel, under a pseudonym, was published by Heinemann in 1963, just weeks before Plath's death. Plath had originally given the name Victoria Lucas to her protagonist, and in Heinemann's first edition, there are two references to a Miss Lucas that Plath and her original editors missed. Three years after her death, the novel was published under Plath's own name by Faber and Faber, and over the next decade, it sold more than 100,000 copies. Although their trust had initially rejected the novel, Harper and Rowe published The Bell Jar in the United States in 1971, followed by a mass-market paperback edition from Bantam Books the subsequent year, selling out its initial 357,000-copy print run within a month. The American publisher of Platt's poetry, Knopf, had, like Harper and Rowe, rejected the bell jar when it first appeared before them, carrying the name Victoria Lucas. Knopf's editor, William Koshland, described himself as feeling knocked galley west to discover its true author was Sylvia Plath. Um, wh- where was Plath herself in terms of um, her health and life as she was, uh, as she was finishing the novel? She was in a a pretty good place, really. She wrote the novel in about six weeks when she was living in London. And I think had a, once she started and broke through into writing it, it came very quickly. And I think to to write a novel like that in six weeks is really impressive. And I think she was very excited about the voice that she'd found uh, for Esther Greenwood. And so I, the thing that I find really interesting about the Beldar is how Plath viewed it, how it was viewed at the time and how it's come to be viewed now. You know, now it's seen as this sort of really classic, massive novel that sells millions and millions of copies. And yet back in 1963, it was something completely different. And whether having written it, Plath, then having revisited that time in her life, whether that impacted on her or not, I don't know. I mean, there, there isn't much evidence that it did in her letters. Ted Hughes says he thinks it unearthed things in her that were not good, but that was his opinion. And we don't really have any evidence uh, that that was the case with Plath. But of course her journals for that time are missing. So we, um, we, we don't perhaps hear a journal voice, but she certainly seemed fine in her letters. And of course, shortly after writing that, she moved to Devon, which was a, a really exciting time for her. And, and she also seems to have shared in common with her heroine. She, the writing seemed to dry up when when she wasn't um, well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that kind of uh, and it was slipping between sort of Esther and. Yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that. Um, I think that certainly when Plath was not writing, you know, she she referred to the writer's block as the panic bird, and she got very panicky and and very upset about it. And this is interesting because this is something also that came out in my research with Anne Sexton, that Anne Sexton's daughter, Linda, would say that, and these are her words, you know, the times that my mother was at her craziest was when the typewriter fell silent. Mm. 
So if the typewriter was noisy, my mother was fine. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, but I, I suppose if you have the urge, that creative urge, and you have to have that outlet, and both Plath and Sexton were very open about, you know, that writing had saved their lives. In an interview with Peter Orr, Plath discussed her lifelong ambition to write prose, saying, I feel that in a novel, you can get in toothbrushes, and all the paraphernalia that one finds in daily life, and I feel this more difficult in poetry. Poetry, I feel, is a tyrannical discipline. You've got to go so far, so fast, in such a small space, that you've just got to turn away all the peripherals. And I miss them. I'm a woman. I like my little lares and penates. I like trivia. Plath sounded similarly modest about the novel in her letters, describing it as an autobiographical apprentice work. As early as 1959, she had realised that she was sitting on material that could not only work as prose fiction, but also potentially turn a profit. Writing in her journal, There is an increasing market for mental hospital stuff. I am a fool if I don't relive, recreate it. Was Plath happy with the, with the reaction to the novel? It must have been quite strange watching it sort of perform under a different name. And... Yeah, I mean, I think the responses to the Belgia, given what the novel has become now um, were quite muted at the time really I mean the, the, the praise was quite mixed I mean nobody was exceptionally rude about it but nobody was particularly raving about it either uh, and I think that coming out when it did in that cold winter of 1963 in January I suspect maybe she might have wanted a little bit more attention for the novel but you know, it was published by a major publisher in the UK. And so it must have been odd for her as well to have it coming out under the name of Victoria Lucas. So, you know, people wouldn't have known it was her that had written it anyway. For a novel telling the story of a destructive rebirth, the afterlife of the Bell Jar is uncanny. On its first appearance, it garnered little attention and perhaps readers were mystified by the publisher's dust jacket declaration. Victoria Lucas is a pseudonym and we are not in a position to disclose any details of the author's identity. But with the veil of Victoria Lucas lifted away, the novel went on to become a modern classic, hailed as an iconic work of feminist literature, an indictment of the paranoid, consumer-driven climate of the 50s, as well as the entry point of choice into the work of a frequently challenging and unsettling poet. Commenting on the posthumous phenomenon of Plath, Marjorie Perloff writes that she has become the darling of those very ladies' magazines that she satirised so mercilessly in the bell jar. However, many of the novel's early reviewers expressed disappointment that the bell jar failed to equal the soaring heights of Ariel, some making it sound like it were nothing more than a poet's notebook. Saul Mayloff, writing in The New Republic, said that, good as it is, the bell jar must be counted part of Sylvia Plath's juvenilia, along with most of the poems of her first volume. And Elizabeth Hardwick agreed, writing in the New York Review of Books, that the novel is not equal to the poems, while conceding that it is free of gross defects and embarrassments. The novel's eventual American publication constituted a posthumous homecoming and a major literary event. In the aftermath of Plath's death, Some reviewers seemingly anticipated the unearthed novel would hold the answers. Sometimes, reading these early responses, you get the impression of the book being assessed purely on its merits as a suicide note. Howard Moss, while praising the novel for its black comedy, writes in The New Yorker that, though we share every shade of feeling that leads to Esther's attempts at suicide, 
There is not the slightest insight in the bell jar into suicide itself. That may be why it bears the stamp of authority. Reading it, we are up against the raw experience of nightmare, not the analysis or understanding of it. With Plath, and particularly with her prose aspiration, she's quite interesting because she definitely saw it as a business. And with her short stories, she, you know, she was keen to break into the short story market, into what she called the women's glossy magazines, Ladies Home Journal. Mm. Um, her short story was published in the UK in um, a, a woman's magazine here. So I think that she was keen to make money from that and to break into that market. And when she was thinking about a subject for a novel, she was thinking about and seeing other books that were around at the time, like The Snake Pit and The Ha Ha by Jennifer Dawson. And she realised that, you know, she had a story that she could monopolise on. And so I think in some ways it was probably quite a, a thing for her to revisit that time in her life. Nevertheless, she also had quite a canny business head on about it as well. And one of her aims, I think, was to write a novel that would be made into a film that would be a big hit and would be made into a film and she could sell film rights and she wanted to buy a house in London and keep a house in Devon and I think she saw that as a way of securing some kind of you know being financially secure in the future. I think a lot of writers at that time and um, I mean such as Anne Sexton she was she was writing um, plays as well as poems but I think Plath saw herself as operating right across the writing market really and it's interesting that she wasn't just working on her own writing but she was working on other people's as well so she edited a small collection of poetry uh, for a magazine and she was also appearing and due to appear on the BBC as a kind of cultural critic mm. so there was a, a program called The Critics that um, started in May 1963 and Plath was due to be one of the panel in this programme that would be looking at new releases of books and plays and music and then uh, passing comment on that and so I think in a sense she was had she not died in 1963 it would have been really interesting to see where her career would have gone because maybe she would have had the whole package you know the poems the stories the novels the, the cultural criticism and who knows what else uh, so I think perhaps the scope of what she was able to do was quite unusual but then so was she. Writing in her journal on Wednesday the 25th of February 1959 Plath described a fractious few days with her husband Ted Hughes. The third anniversary of our meeting. Last night a miserable dowie dowie fight over nothing our usual gloom I am ready to blame it all on myself. The day is an accusation. Pure and clear and ready to be the day of creation. Snow white on all the rooftops and the sun on it and the sky, a high clear blue bell jar. Plath had originally in mind Diary of a Suicide and The Girl in the Mirror as titles for her novel before settling on The Bell Jar, Esther's metaphorical way of describing her mental state sitting under the same glass bell jar, stewing in my own sour air. Under the bell jar, Esther sees the world through its stifling distortions, created by its wadding sour airs and curving glass. Throughout the novel, faces of others loom before Esther as if passing in front of a telescope. 
Betsy's drained face floated in front of me, green and sweating. Buddy's face hung over me, near and huge, like a distracted planet. Her own face is more distorted and protean than any. At various points in the novel, her reflection strikes her as looking like a sick Indian, a big, smudgy-eyed Chinese woman, a convict having just received a prolonged beating, and someone paralysed and stupid. The bell jar obstructs Esther's view of reality, and by wreaking havoc on her sense of proportion, fragments her sense of the world around her. As she attempts to choose or build an identity that will give her life some form, she is dazzled by incoherent smithereens on every side of her, just like the red and blue and white jacketed skiers who she compares to fugitive bits of an American flag. But while it distorts, the bell jar also offers Esther some form of protection. At one point, she recalls a snake she'd once teased in the Bronx Zoo. When I tapped my finger on the stout cage glass, the snake had opened its clockwork jaws and seemed to smile. Then it struck and struck at the invisible pane till I moved off. The figurative glass of the bell jar seems to afford Esther a similar sense of physical invulnerability. I am an observer, she tells herself, almost like a deep sea diver, peering at peril from the safety of reinforced glass. So the bell jar is not only an elegant way of describing Esther's mental condition, how it distorts the way she sees and is seen, it also makes us think about what sort of narrator she is. To the person in the bell jar, Esther reflects late on in the novel, blank and stopped as a dead baby, the world itself is a bad dream. In other words, although the bell jar arrests her development and displays her like a ghoulish specimen of failure, it places her outside of the world's immediate context. From inside her shield of glass, this means Esther can function like an omniscient narrator and experience some of the authorial control she craves. Now, I mean, Plath was very keen to keep this novel a secret mm. and she told her brother that she was working on a book, but she didn't say what it was about. Right. <clears throat> and that she was um, keen that it would just be written off as a pot boiler. But I think in terms of the nature of how autobiographical it was, it's such a fascinating novel because it operates on so many levels and there's so many layers to it. And it is very tempting to read it as straight autobiography, but I think that is quite dangerous to do that. And I say that because to, to deny there's autobiography in it is contrived and ridiculous. Of course, there are autobiographical aspects to the novel. But I think as well, Plath herself stated that she took her personal experience and manipulated it mm. into creative experiences. And I think we see this happening in the novel. So uh, it was interesting because it was just a few days ago, I was reading a letter that she wrote to her editor at her publishers at Heinemann, James, Ritchie, uh, James Mitchie. And the publisher is worried that they're going to get sued about this novel because they're saying, you know, hotels and hospitals and colleges might be able to identify themselves. People might be able to identify themselves. We need to be careful about libel. And so Plath writes this letter outlining all the differences uh, and the ways in which certain people might be based on that person or have aspects of other people mixed in with them as well. And she openly admits, for example, that uh, the hotel in the novel is based on the hotel in New York. But she says, but I don't say anything nasty about it. So they're not going to sue us, are they? Yeah. And so that there's this really wonderful mix of actual, you know, real 
places and people that she's drawn in and experiences from her life. And then she's put them through this creative transformation mm. and they've come out the other end in the novel. But of course, there was the very famous lawsuit against the Belger and the film of the Belger in which a person identified themselves and sued uh, the filmmakers, Ted Hughes as the holding the estate of Sylvia Plath and about 13 other companies that were involved in the film. Uh, and that raised all kinds of issues about how autobiography functions in a novel. Who was it who, who sued? So in the Belgia, there's a character called Joan Gilling ah. and a woman called uh, Jane Anderson recognised herself mm. as this character. And it wasn't until she saw the film in the 1970s uh, that changed the plot of the novel slightly in which... Joan's sexuality is uh, really amplified and there's a overtly lesbian scene in the film and a scene where Joan actually encourages Esther to commit suicide with her. So she's kind of trying to bring about this pact and then there's this lesbian scene. And Jane Anderson, having watched the film, recognised herself as that character and said that it was uh, an invasion of her privacy that she had never been a lesbian, that she had never tried to get anyone involved in a suicide pact, mm. uh, that it defamed her character. And so this lawsuit uh, went ahead. But of course, it's really interesting because in the novel, Joan kills herself yeah. in the end. And so there Jane Anderson is sitting in a courtroom saying, this character is me and it's pointed out but this character dies in the book and you're here giving <laughs> evidence and so there's this really weird mismatch of things going on although she actually she won her case and uh, she won $150,000 gosh and she also won uh, the right that the novel and the film then had to state that it was a work of fiction the world of the novel is full of strange reflections, not all of them produced by the bell jar itself. We hear that the mirror over Esther's bureau is warped and much too silver, and repeated mentions of mercury in connection to glass carry the resonance of madness and mirrors. Elsewhere, mirrors are obscured by telegrams and glares. Esther's friend Doreen has a pocket mirror framed with her name in lacy script and a wreath of frosted daisies, a flattering glass suggesting that this more liberated woman looks at herself with greater self-assurance than Esther. In the novel's first few pages, Esther is looking back at her summer in New York, having apparently had a child, after the events of the bell jar. She says she still has some mementos of her time at the fashion magazine, makeup kit and a plastic sunglasses case decorated with shells, sequins and a green plastic starfish. She cuts this starfish off for the baby to play with, perhaps indicating she is more capable now of removing objects that obscure her view. Earlier in her life, Esther was given to role-playing identities. Upon meeting a new man, she decides to practice my new, normal personality on him. Life at the fashion magazine brings with it an overwhelming sense of staginess. Esther and the other girls working there pose for photographs with props to show what we wanted to be. Beginning a novel... Esther decides her heroine would be called Elaine, pleased that the name has six letters like her own, and also, like we can't help noticing, Plaths. Esther also spontaneously invents a persona, Ellie Higginbottom, 
whilst on a night out with Doreen to feel safer and disassociate anything she does or says that night from her own name. She is preoccupied with doubles. They are to be the subject of her thesis on James Joyce. Her professor has promised to give her some leads on images about twins. And Esther's life seemingly mirrors that of a character called Joan Gilling, a girl who has also dated Buddy Willard and winds up institutionalised in the same hospital as Esther. Esther describes Joan as the beaming double of my old best self, specially designed to follow and torment me, and finds the resemblance so uncanny she even wonders if she herself had made Joan up. Joe Gill notes that it is only after Esther's second round of ECT that she begins to leave her double behind. With separation comes some recognition of the role each has played for the other. Esther comments that the two were so close that Joan's emotions seemed a wry black image of my own. And this supports the theory of Stan Smith, who writes that Esther sees suicide not so much as self-destruction as a theatrical ritual that will free her from her factitious identity and restore her to singularity. It is her image that she wishes to murder, the fraudulent twin which is her public persona, a shamming and artificial dibuk. After Esther's attempted suicide, she lies in her hospital bed, demanding a mirror. The nurse is reluctant to give her one, warning her that she doesn't look very pretty. When Esther is finally shown her reflection, the picture she sees could be either a man or a woman, their head shaved and sprouting chicken feather tufts, one side of the face purple and bulging, the skin turning green and sallow yellow. But the most startling thing, Esther notes, was the supernatural conglomeration of bright colours. She smiles and the mouth cracks back a grin. She smashes the mirror, but listens with only mild interest to the nurse's complaints. While this sounds like the most grotesque distortion yet of Esther's face, she appears somehow satisfied with it, as if the luridly colourful damage attests to the seriousness of her effort to kill herself. The smashed glass, a theatrical touch, adds to the feeling of an invisible barrier being broken, and Esther soon afterwards breaks a tray of glass thermometers, leaving balls of mercury trembling like celestial dew, associating the shattering of glass with new beginnings. And of course, the novel is full of doubles of real-life people, from Plath herself, her therapist Ruth Boitcher, her boyfriend Dick Norton, and her mother Aurelia Plath. Plath stressed in a letter to her editor at Heinemann that she didn't share Esther's feelings towards her mother, who she described as a dutiful, hard-working woman whose beastly daughter is ungrateful to her. From correspondence that I've read in the archive, Aurelia was devastated by the novel, um, and was deeply hurt by the novel and definitely didn't want the novel publishing in America mm. and certainly didn't want the novel publishing under Plath's name in America because, you know, for all of the reasons we were speaking about earlier that people would be able to identify themselves because she recognised not only herself um, in the novel but family friends and neighbours and so it was, I think, a very painful experience for her to read that novel. And when you follow the thread of the correspondence in the archive, you can see that the bell jar uh, came out in America because Ted Hughes wanted to release it. Ted Hughes had seen a property in Devon that he wanted to buy and he needed to raise some funds for it. And so he wanted to publish the bell jar in America. And the payoff of that was that if Aurelia would let the publication of the bell jar go ahead, then she, in response to that, could publish letters between her and Plath. 
to show that actually the relationship between them was much more loving, uh, much more supportive and more complicated than the one that's that's presented in the novel. And so I think that was the kind of compromise they came to, that, that the bell jar would come out. But also Aurelia could almost answer the bell jar with her own book, which became Letters Home. Earlier, I quoted from that interview with Peter Orr, in which Plath talked about the joys of being able to use paraphernalia in prose. Toothbrushes, trivia, and other knick-knacks of the domestic gods, Lares and Penates which Plath says there is no time for in poetry. I find this interesting because, first, it doesn't seem to be true of Plath's poems. They are often teeming with household items. In fact, that was something I talked about on our last Plath episode in relation to the poem A Birthday Present. I also find it interesting because in the bell jar we find Esther in a sea of paraphernalia, of incongruous but tantalising goods, gesturing dubiously towards a system of value. At Doreen's College, for example, all the girls had pocketbook covers made out of the same material as their dresses, so each time they changed their clothes, they had a matching pocketbook. This kind of detail impresses Esther, suggesting a whole life of marvellous, elaborate decadence that attracted me like a magnet. Appetised but doubting her taste, Esther provides what Renée Daubnier calls a prime example of the binge-purge cycle of consumer capitalism which is most keenly revealed in her ambivalence toward consumption throughout the novel. The caloric richness of the foods Esther prefers, her favourite dishes are full of butter and cheese and sour cream, are equated in Esther's mind with their monetary value. Once in New York, she tells the reader, I developed the habit of running my eye down those huge handwritten menus until I picked the richest, most expensive dishes and ordered a string of them. At a banquet thrown by the Ladies' Day magazine, Esther spreads caviar on chicken slices as thickly as if it were peanut butter, as well as eating chicken stuffed with avocado and crab meat and two plates of ice cream and meringue. During the banquet, she recalls a previous occasion in which she downed a finger bowl with floating flowers under the impression that it was an after-dinner soup. Everyone who ate crab meat at the banquet comes down with food poisoning, and after puking, Esther is left feeling purged and holy and ready for a new life. But she is also starving, and very soon tucks into some soup. Other examples of automatic consumption include Esther's eating of peanuts that she bought as bird food, even though they taste dead. Right at the start of the novel, she describes feeling sick while reading headlines about the Rosenberg's execution as she walks through the peanut-smelling mouth of the subway. Peanuts are Plath's snack of choice for the consumer of morbid spectacles. A peanut-munching crowd shoves into the poem Lady Lazarus, drawn by a deathly striptease. Esther's feeling of holiness after purging correspond with the anxieties she has about what foreign objects enter her body. Most immediately, she fears pregnancy, and towards the end of the novel is much relieved by having a diaphragm fitted. But she also appears to fear letting people and experiences enter her in a different sense, in a way that will shape her identity or limit it permanently. Visiting Europe, she imagines, will bring with it a spectacular change, and on returning home, she would look in the mirror and be able to make out a little white alp at the back of her eye. Likewise, pondering the prospect of losing her virginity to Constantin, she imagines looking in the mirror and seeing a doll-sized image of him sitting in her eye and smiling out at her. Later in the novel, she accepts this kind of ingestion as inevitable. 
Realising the cadavers, the sailor on the common, Dr Gordon's wall-eyed nurse, the broken thermometers, are all part of her. They were part of my landscape. It is impossible to fill yourself only with items pure and white as an alp. Digesting the world is a necessarily ugly business. The walls of the sanatorium seem to indicate this. Once white, they have succumbed to a spreading malady, blending into the overall colour scheme of liver. Esther is tormented by choice, not only in what she consumes, but what future to aim for. As René Daubnia writes, Esther's desire to be everything is also constructed as insatiable hunger and is symbolised in the novel by an imaginary fig tree. Esther assesses her options through the fig tree, where, from the tip of every branch like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig represents a career as a homemaker, another a career as a poet, while yet another represents a bohemian lifestyle filled with exotic lovers. However, Esther is not content to settle on one of these paths, because she wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. As a result of her failure to choose, the figs began to wrinkle and go black, while Esther sits in the crotch of the tree, starving to death. There's a sense, I was just thinking when you said that it functions on so many different levels, there's a sense almost that there's a kind of classical shape to the to the book, hiding out of, hiding just out of sight, a kind of descent, uh, a literal underground descent in the case of the, of the bell jar, and then a, a sort of shedding of personality and, and renewal. I was wondering if it, it might be oversimplifying it a bit, but if there was some sense of, of Plath trying to give her her own mental health a sort of shape. I mean, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it, and I haven't really thought about it like that. In, in many ways, it seems to me that the book is, and perhaps this is my interpretation of it as a sociologist, but it seems to me to be a social commentary on a lot of things that were going on at the time. I mean, it's very much based in a, a historical, political moment. The, the book opens with uh, the execution of the Rosenbergs. And it takes us through, as you say, her her journey and her mental collapse and her recovery. I I, I mean, I don't know. I, I find the ending of the Bell Jack quite interesting because although it although we could see the novel as this descent and then ascent back to health, it's not explicitly stated. I mean, Esther's ready to leave the hospital, but the book has quite an ambiguous ending. And this, all the way through the novel, there's this threat and, and Esther keeps saying, you know, how do I know that the bell jar won't descend at some point in the future? How do I know I could be, you know, sitting in a cafe in Europe and the bell jar will come down again? And so there's that there's that threat that it hasn't quite gone away at the end of the novel, I think, even though, you know, we have that promise of, you know, following that that thread out into health, into, into the real world again. Yeah, I kind of, I, I sort of agree with what you're saying, but I do wonder if there's a little bit of ambiguity there as well. Before having a diaphragm fitted, we see Esther nervously leafing through an issue of baby talk. She has every reason to fear becoming pregnant. Her boyfriend, Buddy, tells her that once she has children, she won't want to write poems anymore. Witnessing a childbirth, she is told, you oughtn't to see this. You'll never want to have a baby if you do. On the contrary, Esther is drawn to the grotesque, saying, if there was a road accident or a street fight or a baby pickled in a laboratory jar for me to look at, I'd stop and look so hard I never forgot it. 
And she soon proves this to be true when Buddy, a medical student, shows her some babies that had died before they were born and are now stored in big glass bottles. Throughout the text, one notices that references to babies are frequently aligned with violent language, from Esther cutting off the plastic starfish for the baby to play with, to an article about babies that her mother cuts out of the reader's digest. Dodo Conway's baby carriage emits a violent screeching sound as she pushes it. Then there is the scene where Esther is skiing, which reads as follows. People and trees receded on either hand like the dark sides of a tunnel as I hurtled on to the still bright point at the end of it, the pebble at the bottom of the well, the white, sweet baby cradled in its mother's belly. My teeth crunched a gravelly mouthful, ice water seeped down my throat. Thoughts of babies generate thoughts of death. When a recuperating Esther says she is through with Dr. Gordon's treatments, her mother smiles and says, I knew my baby wasn't like that. I looked at her. Like what? Like those awful people, those awful dead people at that hospital. Even some of the innocuous references to babies carry a deathly stench, given how we have seen them displayed earlier. The woman finished her article by saying better safe than sorry, and besides, there was no sure way of not getting stuck with a baby. And then, you'd really be in a pickle. Even despite the horror of the book, it's it's very um, playful with the sort of layers of performance that are going on. Wonderful bit where Esther is, is um, talking about writing her own novel and says, I've forgotten what the exact quote is, but it, her heroine was going to be me in all but name and I'm going to give her the same same number of letters in the name as mine, which is uh, almost lands like a punchline uh, in the middle of the bell jar. Do you think Plath would have... I mean, she, she'd probably be, be able to expect the reaction of her mother, but would she be slightly dismayed that people didn't pick up on that kind of transformation you were talking about from autobiography to, to fiction? I mean, because she planned to publish it not in her own name, so she was using the name of Victoria Lucas, I don't really see how anybody could have seen that it was autobiographical because they wouldn't have really known who Victoria Lucas was. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, Plath must have been uh, anxious enough for it not to come out under her own name. But whether, whether she would have been worried about people recognising themselves, I guess maybe so, which is why it did come out under Victoria Lucas. And she was very keen to keep it a secret. You know, when she did tell people about it, she told them it's a secret. You mustn't tell anyone. We've already seen some of Esther's reflected selves, her fictional hero Elaine, her invented persona Ellie. Her name also resembles that of Ethel Rosenberg, whose full name was Esther Ethel Greenglass Rosenberg. The first line of the novel refers to the execution of Ethel and her husband, Julius Rosenberg, American citizens convicted of spying for the Soviets. They were killed by electric chair in the summer of 1953. While Julius died after the first electric shock, Ethel was found to be still alive after three, and by the time a further two shocks were administered, smoke was seen rising from her head. Reading about the executions, Esther can't help wondering what it would be like being burned alive all along your nerves. Ironically, as Robert Scholes writes, the same electrical power which destroys the Rosenbergs restores Esther to life. It is shock therapy which finally lifts the bell jar and enables Esther to breathe freely once again. 
Now, I want to have a closer look at how Plath uses electrical power and the imagery she connects to it. Beginning with nerves, we are reminded of that gruesome sentence, burned alive all along your nerves, when later Esther says, following an attempt to hang herself, a smoke seemed to be going up from my nerves, like the smoke from the grills and the sun-saturated road. The whole landscape quavered in front of my eyes like a stage backcloth. She compares the smoke to that of a car and connects her frayed nerves to a feeling of unreality, of staginess. Hold that in mind for a moment as we look at other occurrences of electrical shocks. Diane S. Bond has written that Esther's encounters with men are often devastating. Her father deserts her by dying when she is very young. Much more recently in the novel, she is knocked down in the mud, mauled, practically raped by a man who marks her face with blood. In another, a flashback to an occasion where she ends up inspecting Buddy Willard's genitals. All she can think of is turkey neck and turkey gizzards. And the man she sets out to seduce, Constantin, falls asleep unaroused by her. During both of these last two occasions, Esther is described sensing electrical power. Electrical filaments of hair on her cheek in the first case, and a little electrical shock as Constantin runs his fingers through her hair. When Buddy is later recovering from TB, he smiles as if his mouth were strung up on invisible wire. And indeed, medical intervention in the bell jar frequently involves wires of one kind or another. When Esther witnesses a woman giving birth, she says, I was so struck by the sight of the table where they were lifting the woman, I didn't say a word. It looked like some awful torture table, with these metal stirrups sticking up in midair at one end, and all sorts of instruments and wires and tubes. Before her own electrical shock therapy, Esther is given a wire to bite, before a wee shrilling noise starts, reminding us of the inhuman wooing sound the woman made giving birth. Esther's punishing experience, recalling the fate of the Rosenbergs, makes her wonder what terrible thing it was that I had done. Robin Peel has pointed out that Esther, too, is a kind of spy, saying that she spends a great deal of time looking, studying and scrutinising. I liked looking on at other people, she says, but like the Rosenbergs, she is bewildered by what feels like inexplicable retribution. Esther has previously described how she feels she has no future, saying, I saw the years of my life spaced along a road in the form of telephone poles, threaded together by wires. I counted one, two, three, nineteen telephone poles, and then the wires dangled into space, and try as I would, I couldn't see a single pole beyond the nineteenth. To keep her alive, to get her to twenty, the medical establishment have her bite down on a wire and run a current through her, as if they're trying to restart a stalled car rather than treat a person in distress. There is something crude and masculine about this, and Esther herself talks as if she has been handled by a mechanic, not a doctor, when she says she was patched, retreaded, and approved for the road. It seems apt that after suffering at the hands of electricity, Esther should compare herself to something made of rubber. And earlier we have seen rubber in connection to a literal figure of health, the night nurse, unnoticed on soft rubber soles, walking among the broken-down women at the mental institute. But as Diane S. Bond comments, the tyre, like a kitchen mat, presents us with a utilitarian object, easily repaired or replaced as a metaphor for a woman. It is worth observing that a patched, retreaded tyre may be ready for the road, but somewhere down the highway, the owner can expect a flat. I think the first 
botched treatment that she received of ECT as an outpatient was uh, not only hugely traumatic at the time, but definitely stayed with her mm. as a real deep-seated trauma, as as it would. I mean, if you know, if you experience something like that, and you know, and it operated on on a number of levels for her. Not only the actual terror of feeling like she's being electrocuted and actually being conscious and experiencing that, but also this that there is that line and it, it crops up in the novel and it crops up in a poem as well, where, you know, she wonders what terrible thing it is that she's done. What has she done to deserve this? Yeah. And that's taking a trauma to a different level where, where you're somehow feeling responsible for it as, as if you, you've done something to deserve it. And I think that makes the trauma much more complicated as opposed to thinking it's some terrible thing that some terrible person did to me you know, it becomes a little bit more difficult to unravel when you feel some responsibility yourself. And I think that the fact that when Plath was in McLean Hospital and she agreed to have further ECT at that point has to be a testament to the relationship that she had with Dr. Ruth Boyce, that she trusted her enough to go ahead and, and take a series of ECT because surely that must have been a really terrifying thing for her to do and it was something that she was always frightened would happen again and when she got ill in London in 1963 again you know the fear of institutionalization the fear of ECT um so and recent uh documents in the archives show that when she was at McLean Hospital uh the ECT stopped after probably maybe it's hard to judge but maybe about six treatments because she refused to have any more and that that was the second time that was the second time right mm. the, I, I couldn't believe it happened again um those years later and on on Boitcher's um watch as well because as you say there was there was so much trust there and she, and she seemed a, a completely different type of carer and, and more than a carer um and I think that raised all sorts of issues about Platt's recovery as well, because although the second experience of ECT didn't appear to be traumatic in the sense that I think it was administered properly, the fact that the treatment was quite short and she and Platt seemed to almost have a miraculous recovery from it, which uh, Ruth Bosch had said she had never seen a recovery that quick before, it does make one question about whether was was Plath uh, almost faking her recovery so she didn't have to yeah. continue having ECT. And this is something. Uh, so Jane Anderson, who we mentioned earlier, who sued uh, about the bell jar, she was in the hospital at the same time. And she that was her take on it. She felt that, that Plath had almost faked her recovery in order to escape having ECT. And that's all we have time for today. A huge thank you to my guest, Dr. Gail Crowther. Uh, don't forget to tune in tomorrow to hear an extended interview with her where we'll be talking about uh, Three Martini Afternoons at the Ritz as well as some of her other work as well. Uh, if you're interested in Plath and would like to listen to some some more episodes, I've now done episodes about Plath's life with Carl Rollison. Uh, I've done episodes on um, The Colossus, the poem The Colossus, and the last episode was, of course, on a birthday present. Um, So check those out if you haven't listened to them already. And until next time, happy reading.